Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo, and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre, and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips, and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story, or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Dr. Carl Kruzelnicki has written 26 books. His first book, Great Moments in Science, was published in 1984, and his latest book, Please Explain, was released in November 2007. According to New Scientist magazine, Dr. Carl's last five books have all become best-selling popular science books in Australia. In 2002, Dr. Carl was honoured with the prestigious Ig Nobel Prize, awarded by Harvard University in the USA, for his groundbreaking research into belly button lint and why it is almost always blue. In September 2003, Dr. Carl was named Australian Father of the Year. Dr. Carl received the member of the Order of Australia Award in the 2006 Australia Day Honours List. In 2007, the Australian Skeptic Society awarded Dr. Carl the Australian Skeptic of the Year Prize. He has degrees in physics and maths, biomedical engineering, medicine and surgery, and has worked as a physicist, tutor, filmmaker, car mechanic, labourer, medical doctor at the Kids Hospital in Sydney, radio announcer and, of course, an author. He lives in Sydney with his wife and three children. So thanks for joining us today, Dr Carl. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Now, you've written so many books. Do you have a favourite Dr Carl book? Um, Probably the one I'm writing at the moment because I remember it better than all of the other ones. They're sort of like oxygen. They come in and they go out and then I forget. (laughs) <laughs> and what's the one you're writing about now? Uh, this one is called Science is Golden. And once again, it's basically kind of dealing with misconceptions that people believe that are hideously wrong. Mm. So far, I've written several hundred of these, uh, 350 misconceptions. And you just wonder, how can we humans go around believing so much crap that's wrong? Yeah. How, why do you think we do? I don't know. It's... Um, more of a story, more of a question that can be answered by a psychologist, but I suspect that if you ask six different psychologists, you'll get six different answers. <laughs> now, were you always interested in science, even as a kid, you know? Was it something that you played with in the yard when you were little? Not really. Um, I do remember once reading an astronomy book when I was seven years old and being very impressed about how big the solar system was or how big the Earth was, how big the solar system was, mm-hmm. how our solar system was just one of several hundred billion stars in our galaxy and how there were several hundred billion galaxies. And I then realized that we'd never, ever get to the end of everything. Mm. Uh, and that always impressed me. And then I sort of stayed in science for a bit, then dropped out of it for a while and then um, went to New Guinea and did some stuff there and then came back and did some filmmaking and then ended up drifting back into the uh, hospital system as a scientific officer and then became a doctor and then sort of accidentally drifted back into science because I figured that, I don't know why, but not knowing the life sciences left me with a big hole in my education. Right. Now that I've picked up that knowledge, I feel much happier with being able to talk about general knowledge. 
and bringing science to a mainstream audience is something that you do really well. Is it, is it something that you're quite passionate about? How did you, why did you, why do you want to do it? Um, for a variety of reasons. One is that, uh, it's just being a storyteller. Mm. Uh, number two, the way to do it is not just to, the way to do it is to ignore the boring stuff and just concentrate on the interesting stuff that people can talk about in pubs. <laughs> Number three, science can improve your quality of life enormously and does so, has done, will continue to do so. Um, and the other reason that I'm in the media is so that I can help liberate people from what holds them back. I did this first as a medical doctor in the kids' hospital Mm. And then uh, I realised I could do more good telling people sensible stuff in the media than I could one-to-one as a doctor-patient relationship thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so get your kids vaccinated, I say. Sure, vaccinations are not perfect. Nothing made by humans is perfect, but it's the best thing we've got. Go for it. And so basically I've now realised that my role is to help liberate people from what holds them back. And so if I'm in the supermarket before I get to the checkout, uh, there'll be probably two or three people who've come up to um, thank me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll say, I've been listening to your radio shows, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result, I've, and I'll pick any one of a number of things, decide to go back to finish off my high school certificate or do a degree in nursing or become a chippy or do my PhD again. Which wow. I out of. But I don't know what it is about my answering questions on the radio mm. that um, in encourages people to use their brains, but maybe that's what our show is all about, the fact that there are reasonably logical ways to solve these problems of what's going on in the world around us, um, like if, it's, if we're heading into winter, um, and it's not, the time available for washing is shorter, mm. because in summer you get 13 and a half hours of sunlight at Sydney, in winter you get nine and a half, mm. and also the sun is low on the horizon. So you're basically getting about half the number of um, photons of heat available to dry your clothes. So which way should you hang your towels? Should you hang them up, down, or left, right? I still haven't solved that one. (laughs) Now, you do quite a combination of things from radio to writing books to your work in the hospital. Um, Is it hard to juggle it all, and is there something that you actually prefer over the other? Um, The thing that I like best Mm. is the creative process. writing a story for radio or for a book. Um, The trouble is that there's all this other paperwork. For example, I had to walk up to the bank and Mm -hmm. deposit a check, right? So uh, that that was half an hour where I couldn't be doing creative stuff. Right. But on the other hand, um, I managed to walk quickly, and so it was um, a fun time for my mind to to tune out and both tune in but tune out and tune in at the same time. Mm. So I was doing a little bit of very mild exercise and um, walking rapidly through the streets as well as getting to the bank. (laughs) So it wasn't a waste of time. (laughs) Sure. Writing a book involves a lot of research, a lot of writing, a lot of editing. It's a a very long process, writing a book. Do you find, you know, that um, you get as much out of that as you do with the instant sort of gratification, so to speak, of a radio show? Well, on one hand, the radio show is something that I've spent my whole life preparing for Mm. because the questions can range from why does the hair on my eyebrows grow shorter than the hair on my skull Mm. to 
So there, to answer that, you've got to know a bit of genetics and a bit of dermatology mm. to how come when I left the car battery on the concrete, it went flat. Well, I had another car battery and I left it on a lump of wood and it didn't go flat. Mm. Right? And so to be able to answer both those questions one after the other, I do need to have a large database of knowledge already in my brain, which I've spent most of my life accumulating. Mm. Um, and then I just get the instant gratification, which is fun. But on the other hand, the way I get the knowledge in my brain is not just by reading because that's only a, a false and not true knowledge. You think you know it, but you only really – you might know it. You might. But the only way you can tell is if you try to explain it to somebody. Mm. And if you can't explain it to somebody, then you don't really know it. You've got a poor understanding. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my colleague uh, Adam Spencer and I were doing a story about royal jelly. And mm-hmm. we were trying to understand how come the bees seem to have three genders in their nest, mm-hmm. in their hive. One fertile female who lives for six or so years, the infertile females, and it took us a while to work out the reason they're infertile is that they don't have ovaries. Mm-hmm. The infertile females who live for about 42 days and die, and a handful of um, drones who are fertile males whose only job is to impregnate the queen bee once mm. and then get booed out of the nest to die next time winter happens. <laughs> and to try and – that little summary that I just gave you, that took Adam – well, firstly, to write the story took me about 20 hours. Mm. And then I'd completely forgotten it. Then Adam read through it and he was reading back stuff. And I'd complete, it was as though I'd never written the story. Mm. But luckily I wrote it fairly concisely so I could understand what I'd written. Mm. And then it took another 20 minutes for me to be able to get the head around the stuff that I gave you back in one – um, short 90 second sentence mm. so that's what I the, the books are necessary to keep on building up the database because that way if I can turn it into a story then I know that I understand it and of course I might have made a mistake or two along the way mm. I always run it past experts in the field if I can Mm-mm. so the books are a necessary part of the process of understanding and then they give me the wonderful instantaneous gratification so I've got a, a similar show to the uh, Triple J science talkback show. I've got them in various parts of Australia, far north Queensland and Brisbane and Broken Hill. And, uh, and the BBC, I've had a show going on the BBC for about five or something years now. Mm-hmm. And it's a similar talkback show on BBC Radio 5 Live. So people ring in. And actually, that, that's quite a weird one because it's a funny concept that there's this guy from Australia mm. answering questions to a British audience. Mm. <laughs> and I was doing a gig in a rainforest in Cairns once for a pharmaceutical company uh, about, um, what was it? It wasn't about memory. What was the topic in Cairns? It'll come to me in just a minute. There was some obscure part of um, neuroscience. Right. And... Um, uh, it was quite lovely. The company had set up very nicely. We walked through the rainforest, little lights dotted here, tables set up in a clearing, blowing me down a screen and a data projector. <laughs> and, and so I'm talking away to the audience. And then suddenly this guy comes out of the audience, drunkenly lurches up to the front of the stage and says, you're real, Dr. Carl. You're all real in a pompey accent. <laughs> and it turns out that this guy has been listening to me for the last three years in Leicester <laughs> and he does the midnight to dawn shift in his research because that's the only time he can get a good run at everything. And he listens to me between 3 and 4 a.m. English time as he's driving home. Oh, God. And all the time, for the last couple of years, he thought 
that this was some sort of comedy send-up show where they pretend <laughs> to have an Australian in a next-door studio, and he never realised I actually was a real biological oh. entity living in Australia until he, he he came and saw me on the stage. And we talked afterwards, and I never realised you were real, drunkenly, of course. Did he think you were making up the answers or something as well? Oh, no, because that's really easy to pick up. Mm. Uh, this, the first point is that if you don't know the answer, you say, I don't know. Mm. Um, and secondly, you do try to give them something interesting because this is radio, it's entertainment, it's, it's airtime, but you never try and lie. Mm. Uh, and, and I do make mistakes from time to time and i um, very lucky that people pick me up on them. Sure. You seem to have very unique ideas for marketing some of your books. Tell us about the marketing campaign for It Ain't Necessarily So Bro. Uh, which one was that? Was that um, there's a rocket launch? Like we, we've been do, we've been doing rocket launch. You know, we've been doing um, launches mm-hmm. for some years, mm-hmm. and the trouble with a launch is that it's not real. Nothing gets launched. <laughs> you just sit there. You know, you go and you drink some cheap wine and you have some cheese and bickies. I hereby launch this book. <laughs> Sell half a dozen books to your friends and family, and, and that's the end of it. Nothing else happens. Sure. And I thought, well, maybe we can do better than that. So what You we wanted did, a real launch. Yeah, so <laughs> we, we, we folded the book into a cylinder. This is actually Caroline's idea, the woman I work with, Caroline mm-hmm. Pegram. We folded the book into we, – we, we wanted to launch it. So what we did was that we then approached the University of Sydney Rocketry Club. Mm-hmm. And luckily the guy who was, uh, we dealt with uh, was the next rocket man from the United States uh, Air Force. He's over here in Australia. Yeah, very handy, very handy. Universities are good for that sort of stuff. So we approached him and um, he folded the book into a cylinder, stuck uh, a rocket cone with a couple of parachutes at one end, a couple of rocket engines at the other end, stuck on a few fins, and we launched it from Bondi Beach for Bondi Rescue Live on Channel 7. Great. We had to get permission from... Uh, Civil Aviation Authority, Air Authority, to do it. And we had to keep our rocket under 500 feet. And <laughs> the people at Harbour Collins were having all sorts of conniptions over the legal implications, mm. uh, as you would expect, because they, the legal person didn't know rockets. <laughs> I know. Which is not, yeah, and you can't, you can't blame them for not knowing rockets. So it was a wonderful launch. And this year we're going for the Guinness Book of Records. In what way? There's a Guinness Book of Records, believe it or not, for the most number of radio interviews done in a single 24-hour day. Right. And it's currently at about 60. We're going to try and beat that. Really? Hmm. I think then the rocket launch is probably really the only true book launch in, in history then. That's right. Unless somebody were to make it into a boat and float it off into the harbour or something yes. like that. So tell us about your typical working day. You do everything. Well, I work for the university, mm-hmm. and that's really encouraging, and I give lectures, and apparently uh, these are mainly to the general public and, um, and school students, mainly school students, actually, mm-hmm. and these lectures are so inspiring that I'm responsible, apparently, for one in every seven people coming to the University of Sydney to study science. Wow. Then I do stuff for the ABC. Um, and that's wonderful uh, because you get to talk to a very large audience. And then I 
do public speaking as well. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to the pharmacists of South Australia and to the self-insurers of South Australia on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And then I do family as well. And when do you write your books? How does that all fit in? So at the moment, it, it varies. Mm-hmm. The first thing is that to write a short story is much easier than a long one. Yes. It basically goes up as a square the time. So if, if the book, if the story is 10 times longer, mm-hmm. it doesn't take 10 times longer in time to write. It takes 100 times. Mm-hmm. Because writing a thousand word chapter, I could do in about two hours. Writing a 10,000 word chapter takes about 50 hours. Okay, there's not 100 times, but you know, it's, it takes a lot longer. Mm-hmm. So for my columns, it all begins at the moment, for the last few years, with the columns that I do for the Good Weekend in the Herald. Mm. And to write that fairly microscopic 400-word um, story takes me about 12 hours. Wow. During that time, I will have read widely through the literature. Mm. Um, I'll have generated uh, a file two centimetres thick which is about 50,000 words. Mm. I will have read every single word of it once and underlined it. Then I'll have have gone through and the bits that I've underlined, I'll have written them down by hand onto sheets of paper. Mm. And then when it's all loaded in my brain, then with reference to the summary on the sheets of paper, so I've I've shrunk two centimetres of paper and 50,000 words down to about down about four word, four pages or two pages or one page if I'm lucky. And then I'll, the actual writing uh, takes only about an hour. Then I get my wife to correct it and edit it. She's my best editor. And then I send it to the Herald when they do things to it. Then when it comes time to turn it into a book, I add in all the things I left out to keep it down to 400 words. Do you read other science writers or other even science fiction writers? Oh, well, believe it or not, I, I used to read lots and lots of books. Mm. Well, by books, I don't mean real books, I mean science fiction books. Mm. And I read one book every day from when I was 16 mm. to 32. Okay. And that's a full hardcover book. Mm-hmm. But at 32, I had to stop mm. because I started studying science. Oh, sorry, medicine. Right. And the body of knowledge that you have to absorb to be a medical doctor is huge. Mm. It's not particularly difficult, any of it. It's just there's so much of it sure. because the human body is so complicated. You don't need brains to be a medical doctor. You need a memory. Yes. Memory is the most important thing. So you can say, okay, uh, you've got these symptoms. Now, according to my memory, the closest match is scarlet fever. So in your memory, the patient comes in, you say, you've got these symptoms. Now, according to my memory, you've got scarlet fever. Um, except for this little symptom here, and I'll worry about that quietly in the background, but that's where we'll make our t- first tentative diagnosis. Mm. So um, I had to, I've started taking up then, believe it or not. I've actually, in the last couple of weeks, I decided I'm sick of not reading books. So I started off with the most junky books I could find, science fiction writers of the um, late 20th century. Right. And I don't mean that gloomy crap where the future is dark and all rains a lot, a lot and the rich people run everything, the poor people are screwed. Yeah. I mean, imagine this science fiction where the plots are thin, where, where the characterization is thin, but the mm. plots are complex. What are you reading now? I'm reading a story by Paul Anderson, P-O-U-L Anderson, mm-hmm. who's a wonderful science fiction writer. He came up with the Heechee series and lots of other good stuff. 
And this is a book written about 20 years ago called, or 30 years ago called Operation Chaos. About, uh, I think it was probably written 40 years ago. And so, wait for it. It's about a world mm. where magic is real. Mm. Just like Harry Potter. Mm. So he was exploring that concept. So the hero throws these spells and then has it. But it's not done in Dungeons and Dragons, sort of people wearing long flowing gowns. You know, the guy goes to work uh, every day. He lives in modern America, except modern America is having a battle with various other religious organizations and, and wizards and witches and people have broomsticks mm. um, to travel around on. Uh, and and he t- his skill is that he can turn into a wolf with a very heightened sense of smell. He even describes how he has to wear special elasticized underwear so that when he <laughs> changes from human into wolf and back again, he doesn't suddenly end up naked in the street when he turns back to human again. <laughs> Now, do you research, do you do all your research or do you have assistance or, at no, all? No, I do it. I read my way through $10,000 worth of scientific literature every year, pile mm. about a metre thick every month, because other people don't see the stuff that I do. Yeah, and don't yeah. give you the understanding that you need. Well, I'm always after true and deep understanding. Like I remember this morning I was listening to my colleague, Adam Spencer, reading back this story mm. that I myself had written but had completely forgotten. I kept on saying, why? And I say again, I don't understand. And just keep on hammering at him until finally I can understand the three genders of bees. Right. Now it's all clear in my head. Mm. I've forgotten that I'd written about it. How about that? <laughs> and finally, what advice would you give to other aspiring writers who might want to write about their area of expertise? Um... Well, it's hard. I mean, depending on whether they're trying to write a novel, mm. fiction or non-fiction, and if it's non-fiction, is they're trying to write a, a highly technical one or one for the general public. But in general, I'd say write it so that your grandmother can understand it. Mm. Write it so the slightly drunk, obnoxious guy down the pub is interested enough to keep on reading to understand it. Mm. Good advice. Mm. Thank you for your time today, Dr. Carl. Okay, wonderful. Wonderful, thank you. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.